Hi, Anna. Hi, Gira. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm just about to make a coffee. Do you want to join me? Yeah, why not? Let's have a break. Let's have a chat. From OTMP, welcome to MindWorks, a podcast going behind the scenes of our mental wellness clinic, giving insights into the world of mental health from our team of renowned experts. In this episode, Gira Patel, a mental health counselor and therapist, and Anna Fenton, a general mental health counselor specializing in all aspects of relationships and addiction, sit down over coffee to discuss love addiction and how to spot unhealthy relationship patterns, the brain chemistry that drives obsessive compulsive behavior, and when we should switch dating apps for dating detox. Actually, there's something I've been wanting to ask you, if you don't mind. I want to pick your brains as a relationship expert. There's something that I've been seeing quite a lot lately, and it's people asking, I've been seeing someone, and I want to be with them all the time. I can't stop thinking about them, and they don't seem to feel the same way. Anna, I'm a bit confused because, you know, I'm I'm thinking, why did people fall so madly head over heels in love with the wrong person? Oh, the wrong person. I think what we could call this is falling in love with the unavailable person, the emotionally unavailable. Now, what I often see is what we could call love or relationship addiction. And it is because it's so intense and the behavior that it causes is so obsessively compulsive that it actually qualifies as a proper addiction. Now, this has its origins in childhood, unfortunately, where little girls will often have a fantasy about a knight in shining armor who will come and save them. And they really love this fantasy. And it often happens if they have a less than nurturing relationship with their, what we call primary caregivers, that were usually their parents, not always. And they will kind of fantasize to heal this hole in their life and dream of somebody who will save them and rescue them. And then they can get quite an, an endorphin rush from this. If you have very good fantasies with very good pictures in your mind, you can release what are called these endorphins, which are the body's natural opiates, which is a natural high. And then when you're older and you you think, oh, like the look of that person, start fantasizing about them and you can reawaken all these old fantasies of being saved and rescued. And it can be very exciting indeed. And that can be the beginning of it. So this idea of a soulmate, does, does that actually exist? What are your thoughts on soulmates and finding the right one, the one? Oh, I think there's many right ones. You know, in my experience, relationships uh, sink or swim on the basis of our ability to meet the needs of the other person and get our own needs met while showing up as ourselves in the relationship. That means not being what we think other people want us to be, what's called owning our own reality, which is quite a challenge if we have low self-esteem and low self-worth. Now, your typical love addict is pretty low on both. So their relationship with their self is not in great shape. So what they're seeking is a relationship with somebody else to heal their messed up relationship with themselves, which puts a lot of unreasonable expectations of unconditional love and caretaking and adoration onto their fantasy partner, which are very rarely met in reality. Now, unfortunately, it's a bit like a Velcro attraction. The love addict who, who craves intimacy with a, a real, real intensity is very attracted to someone called a love avoidant who craves the opposite, which is intensity, not intimacy. And they love drama, they love excitement. But as soon as the going gets a bit tough and the, the love addict, the, the needy person gets needy and clingy, the love avoidant partners usually, usually can't be seen for dust. They're normally out of there, which leaves the love addict, the, the person seeking intimacy, feeling empty and frustrated and often really, really angry. 
Wow, gosh, that's really interesting. So this avoidant attachment and anxious attachment, these are, these are formed in childhood. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Again, back to mom and pop. If we weren't getting our childhood dependency needs in terms of nurturing both emotional and physical and getting our self-worth in good shape, you see, when our caretakers as children don't give us enough good stuff for us to feel connected and intimate with them, children interpret that as, well, I can't be worth it. If you don't care for me, I'm not worth it. Now, that translates in adult life to believing I'm helpless to meet my own needs, which then translates into I'm unlovable, but I need it. I really believe that relationships are the solution to my problem to feel whole. And then, of course, romantic rom-coms and love songs and all these great dramas make us believe that true love, which is really a fairly unhealthy form of addiction, would save us. So every time we go to the cinema, this is reinforced that a relationship would make me feel whole, would make me feel better. Love addiction, that's an interesting concept. Is that different from sex addiction then? They're two halves of the same coin, really. Uh, you're talking about people who've got the, the classic addiction, empty, hole-in-the-soul feeling. They, they have a problem with what's called intolerable reality. They have uncomfortable feelings. And they use addictive brain chemistry, such as dopamine and endorphins, to numb themselves and take themselves out of these uncomfortable feeling states. Now, relationships and this belief that people can save us from this feeling of hollow emptiness is very prevalent. And I'm afraid fed these days like a belt-fed mortar by the internet. We now have ways of getting, thanks to Pornhub, um, high and into porn, which is now going straight into sex addiction. I'm seeing this more and more. And the love addiction gets mixed up in there. The love addiction tends to be more the ladies, but I'm not saying there aren't gentlemen who become love addicts too. And they have a sort of, um, if if the ladies are looking for a knight in shining armor, and they what they do is they take an image of this person and they imagine a mask, like a template, and they walk around with it looking for the guy. And then they put that mask on top of the guy, which is their ideal fantasy, and then try and make him live up to it, whether it's true or not, and it usually isn't. The opposite is when men find what they think is whatever was the what was missing in their upbringing, and typically our love avoidant, remember, he's the opposite of the, the love addict. He had what was called a very enmeshed relationship with adult caregivers, i.e. he ended up taking care, either emotionally or physically, of an adult who should have been caring for him. So he ended up with a really strange sense of what relationships are. Typically, he thought relationships gave him self-worth because if your mummy's special boy in a family of boys, you have a privileged relationship with her. If your mummy's confidant, and when you're a kid, that's quite fun. But as you get older, that gets to be a bit uncomfortable in your when you're 14 or 15. So you've got a belief that I get self-worth from being very close to my parent or caregiver. But then you also believe that caring relationships are also very claustrophobic and controlling, and that's very uncomfortable. So much as you're enticed by the intimacy of a relationship and the perceived closeness, you can also feel repelled by it as well. So at some level, they're very attracted to closeness. So some sort of caring wonder woman is their fantasy object. But of course, it doesn't always play out that well. So the expression, we date someone who's like our parents, that holds true? Absolutely. You see, we can only model in terms of relationships, what we saw around us. And for someone who didn't get enough nurturing from their parents, or worse, the other end smothered, which is often what has happened to the guys, is that's all we saw. That's all we know. So that becomes our model for relationships, if you like. 
There's no one handing out guidebooks for relationships. We just soak up the level of skills that our parents did or didn't have. Or if we were outsourced to the helper or somebody else to look after us, we will have felt a famine in the realm of attention from our parents, that necessary love that gives us our necessary self-worth and self-esteem. Do you think that things are getting confused by social media, maybe even dating apps? Ooh, dating apps. Ooh. Dating apps are a whole problem, problem area now. This feeds the fantasy. They're based on the visual. You know, there's lots of pictures on there. They're based on an idealized fantasy that we believe can be made real. Not just that, but we've got a massive choice. So that feels like we don't have to deal with the difficulty of rejection because love addicts are absolutely terrified of being abandoned or rejected, as indeed are love avoidance. They're also frightened of being left too. So they look at a dating app and think, there's so many to choose from. I feel like I'm in control of this. But they don't even know if what they're looking at is real. But they project, put their mask on and their stencil and, and put their ideal person onto the date object and then try and make it come true. And they get so sucked into this that in time they get scammed. They want to believe it's true so much. They want to believe the fantasy. And the line gets blurred easily. Anna, you mentioned rejection. It just gets me thinking about breakups. Patients will often come and see me uh, for cognitive behavior therapy to help them overcome stress and difficulties after a breakup. And actually, one of the things that I do get asked is how long should you take to get over a breakup? You know, is there a specific time or, you know, do you have any advice on that? Oh, I think this is a good chance to talk about dating detox. After a relationship, I think we all need a bit of recovery time. If it was a toxic breakup because it was a love addict, love avoidant type of relationship, I think we need a bit of time to look at our self-esteem and our self-worth and our boundaries and make sure that they're in good shape before we launch into another relationship. Because coming out of something like that, it can be easy to avoid the pain of the breakup by immediately getting into a new addictive relationship and just basically rerunning our pattern again. So we have to be aware of that. And when you're doing your cognitive behavioral therapy, I'm sure that this is the sort of thing you highlight is the patterns that keep recurring in their faulty thinking, which is really good. Generally speaking, I think our identity takes a bit of a knock when we come out of a relationship. So I think some time off just to rediscover who we are and to value ourselves and get back into the habit of self-love and understanding that, first of all, love starts with loving ourselves. Nobody can love us if we don't love ourselves. And it, it really needs a little bit of time. How long? Varies from person to person. Anna, what actually happens in our brains when we are in love? Ah, really interesting in the brain chemistry department. Back somewhere above your ears, we've got the old reptile brain, which is the seat of the survival mechanism and the primary emotions and the pleasure and reward system, which is where the juices and drives that make us feel good uh, reside. So dopamine would be the main one here. Now, dopamine, often people confuse that with serotonin and endorphins. It's important to distinguish between the three. Dopamine is tension rising. It's excitement. It's fantasy, which is why things like porn create so much dopamine, because it's excitement. It's not satisfaction. That would be more like serotonin. That's the ah one after, you know, whatever, and a good meal. So end of the evening, when you're feeling you have to let your belt out a notch, that's normally serotonin that's flying around then. Endorphins tend to be also created by fantasy. That can be a habit that we learn quite young in life is to 
go off in a daydream and have a really lovely thought and feel good about it. Generally, it's exercise that creates that and it creates a nice relaxed feeling in the muscles and it's the brain's natural opiates. So brain chemistry for love is primarily dopamine. The same brain chemistry is when mothers have new babies and it creates an attachment chemical called oxytocin. Now, oxytocin is what bonds mum and baby to each other, which creates the super strong attachment bond, which needs to be there because human infants are helpless up until the age of about 16. So they have to have the super strong attachment bond with their parent. And that's the beginning of nature's way in, in dating. Remember, dating is a serious business in nature. This is how you're choosing a mate. So they want to actually have you capable of bonding very strongly to another human being because you may be responsible for the next generation. So the dopamine is the precursor, if you like, to get you interested in the person. And then the like the, the, the excitement that leads to the glue of the oxytocin. This is super fascinating to learn about the, the chemistry. So in the initial phase of a relationship, the dating, the dopamine, the endorphins, but once you're in a more settled relationship, there's maybe different chemistry that's going on. Yeah, it's more about bonding then and less about excitement. And I think I would see, and I'm sure you see this too with patients, that they love the first infatuation phase of a relationship, which can last anywhere from ooh, lunch to 18 months, I would say. And then often, sadly, it's the honeymoon where all this sort of the bubble bursts and real life starts and then starts what's called the power struggle stage of the relationship where the, the glasses are off now and we all have to pretend no more and we own up as who we are ourselves and we stop being on best behavior and we now without the help of all these lovely intoxicating brain chemistry have to get on with the day-to-day -day work of discovering who we are really and what we how we split up the jobs of life in our relationship. So this concept of a love addict Anna how did people know if they're a love addict? There's three parts to this. First of all, love addicts tend to overvalue other people, the, the object of their love. They will assume that they have superpowers and that they're much better at doing things than they really are. They will imagine them as more handsome, more caring, more loving, more able to take care of them. And they will obsess about them. They'll give them excessive amounts of time, attention and value. And they'll value them more than they value themselves. That's the first thing. The second thing is they'll have unrealistic expectations of unconditional love, which they believe they deserve from the object of their love. Now, the object of their love isn't aware of that, by the way. And then thirdly, they'll tend to abandon their self-care and their own self-esteem and their own value sense of needing to value themselves as they throw themselves into the arms of the beloved. They just give up responsibility for look after, looking after themselves. And there are two fears operating as well. One conscious, one unconscious. The conscious one is the fear of abandonment and rejection, which they know that they're craving intimacy because all along they've been feeling abandoned by primary caregiver. This is the bit that loops back to childhood. And then there's an unconscious fear of intimacy, which seems paradoxical, but they they often get into an intimate relationship and then create distance all of a sudden because they don't know how to do intimacy because they haven't had a good model for it from childhood. And it can be very frightening to show up as open, honest and vulnerable in a relationship when you haven't got good self-esteem or good self-worth. So in, in your opinion, in modern life, is, is this on the increase? Are you seeing detrimental effects of social media, the Internet on these areas? Definitely. Everything's the same, only much faster. We can now do multiples. 
I think in even 20 years ago, the number of people you had access to was very limited relative to now. You can go on a dating app and be matched with 10 people in 10 minutes. And that can seem like a smorgasbord of dating opportunities. And it feels like it's all possible. It doesn't seem to have limits. It's fueling fantasy and fueling all the brain chemicals, all the excitement, the logging on. Did I get a like? Did I get a swipe? Did I get a click? It's fueling everything that we know makes us excited and revved up. So the designers of these apps know about the brain chemistry and how to uh, play with that, I suppose. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, they employ psychologists to do just that. I have to say the psychology is not new and the psychology of a scammer, of an internet scammer, which we talked about earlier, is not new either. They do the love bomb and then scare the person technique, which is shower somebody with love who's craving intensity and intimacy, our, our friend, the love addict. They shower them with love and then withdraw it. And typically they ask for money. And then if the love addict doesn't uh, agree, they will withdraw the love and put the fear into the love addict, become addicted to the love. So the love addict will end up agreeing to give money or whatever's being asked for just to get the love back because they're so appalled at being abandoned or feeling of rejection. Anna, what are the obvious warning signs? Uh, I would say your friends are very good barometers of this because you won't be seeing them. You'll be spending so much time obsessing and wanting to spend every minute with your beloved and monitoring what they're up to and who they're with and where they are and wanting to be with them. Your friends don't get a look in. And you may just stop doing things like going to the gym and doing the things you normally do and stop hanging out with your mates and doing your own hobbies because you're so obsessed with being ever available, always ready, by the phone, just in case he texts or rings. So you can become completely over-focused. If you find your life is getting lopsided and just out of balance, that's a big red flag. So Anna, it's great if people realise they have a problem and they can get help, but let's say they don't. I mean, how far can this run its course? You know, How bad can things get for love addicts? Oh dear. Well, if a love addict gets dumped by a love avoidant who... Love avoidance are very often into intensity and drama, and they will often have some addictions running along the side of their own, typically alcohol, gambling, gaming, porn, sex. They may have some other things going on, and they may quickly jump into another relationship as a way to deal with their own discomfort over the end of the relationship with the love addict. Now, the love addict can easily playing out, again, old emotions from childhood, which can often be resentment and anger against people they were in relationships where their needs weren't met. They can often re-hook into all these old nasty feelings, especially the anger ones. And I think we've all seen enough movies about this, starting with Fatal Attraction. Even the phrase bunny boiler is in our language, isn't it? Where the idea that if I can't get him back, I'll get even. Now, this can also lead to a very unpleasant phase where there can be self-harming or suicide threats to manipulate the love avoidant who is avoiding and not coming back. That's a very dark place people can go. But the trying to get him back, trying to do extreme things to get him back can include if it's a husband and wife, for example, and they're now ex, you know, going around to his new house and bringing the children and dumping them on the doorstep of the new girlfriend and saying, well, you want him that much, you can have them or chopping the arms out of his suits. and We've all read these strange acts of revenge that go on, and it can get pretty nasty. So if you catch yourself being what's called an offender, or going near offending behaviour, 
anything that could be considered really you could be arrested for or that your friends are going, no, 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 don't do that. It's time to get some help. Um, go see a counsellor. So there, there is hope if, if people recognise the warning signs and catch it early, or even if they're getting to those extreme levels and recognising this is really very unhealthy behaviour, there is hope. There is a way out of love love addiction. Absolutely. But if you, if you catch yourself going into revenge relationships or curing the old relationship with a new one, talk to your friends. They'll probably have a pretty good insight in this and they'll red flag what you're up to and tell you it's time to get help. But there is help there. But the first thing is got to break the denial and the delusion that you have a problem. Anna, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your thoughts. Have a great day. You too. See you soon. See ya. For more information, advice, and support about the topics discussed in this podcast, please visit our website at www.mindworks.com.hk, where you can also comment, like, and share. To hear future episodes, please subscribe. This podcast was produced by Punch Presentations for OTMP and Mindworks. Thanks for listening.